I uh, imagine when you start turning in your Bibles this morning, you're going to find that your Bible probably just flops open to the book of Hebrews, because uh, we've been in it for uh, about a year and a half. But this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles. We're going to start a brand new series uh, this morning. I really thought about putting it off until the end of the summer, and I thought, well, I uh, might as well just get started and get into it. That way I don't chase rabbits and, and uh, all of that. And God works through, when we look verse by verse at a book in the Bible, then we, when it, it's always been amazing to me that something that our world is facing, our church is facing, people in our church are facing, uh, there's, a, there's, God has a word for them and, and it's just God at work and, and his word is alive. Amen. And because of that, I want you to look at the book of Mark this morning. We're going to look at the first eight verses in just a few moments. Most towns in America have what is called a first Baptist church. In fact, that means that more likely they were the first Baptist church that was organized or created in a particular city. Marcia and I, last week when we were attending the Southern Baptist Convention, we attended the First Baptist Church of Dallas. And in that church, it was an amazing service. They had an amazing uh, orchestra. In fact, when the music started, uh, I didn't see the orchestra down there in the pit. And at first, and I thought, man, that, that, that's just beautiful music. And then I realized that it wasn't a track. It wasn't uh, a CD playing at all. It was their orchestra that was playing. And then here comes in their choir. And I would just say, I'm, I'm proud of our 20 to 25 people in our choir, but uh, I lost count after 125. And uh, I mean, it was huge. I, and the reason I lost count was because I, I just can't keep focused that long, I guess. And so uh, I thought, well, at least I got over 125 there. And that day, it was really interesting because they knew that the, the messengers from the, Baptist, uh, from the Southern Baptist Convention was going to be there. And so that meant as we were walking in at their 1050 service, we, uh, we were, uh, I met with a bunch of uh, guys that I knew. There were seminary presidents walking in. There were past presidents of the convention walking in. Uh, there were just a lot of folks that, that Marsha and I knew and that day, though, uh, their pastor was not in the pulpit. He was actually over uh, doing a, a, a tour and, and looking at the Apostle Paul's life and going through the Mediterranean and all through there. And, and so they had a special speaker, and they also had their musician. They had a special music guy as well, and he happened to be the professor of music at Southwestern Seminary. And I just want you to know, it was a just a blessing. It was just a really a tremendous there. And as Dr. Hawkins was preaching, he started talking about uh, writing a book about the former pastor of Dallas. He went through all of the pastors, the five or six pastors that Dallas has had through the years. And he mentioned one named Dr. Truett. Now, Dr. Truett uh, was the pastor there before Dr. Criswell was there. And so Dr. Truett was there in the 20s and the 30s and, and in that age. And, and he went to school at Baylor University, graduated from there. But Dr. Hawkins is writing a book not only about Dr. Truett, because Dr. Hawkins actually, uh, who is with, the, with uh, Guidestone, uh, has been directing it now for about 20-something years. Uh, he, he was also pastor of First Baptist Dallas at one point as well. And, but he's also talking about Dr. J. Frank Norris. 
And Dr. J. Frank Norris was the pastor of First Baptist Fort Worth, and Dr. Truett was the pastor of First Baptist Dallas. They both went to school together at Baylor. Uh, Dr. Norris, if you know anything about J. Uh, J. Frank Norris, he was an antagonist uh, there. In fact, he, he broke off from the Southern Baptist Convention. He led First Baptist Fort Worth to break away from the Southern Baptist Convention. But he and Dr. Truett, were, were, they were always at each other. And it was told by Dr. Hawkins that Dr. Norris, at 2 o'clock in the morning, 2 to 3 o'clock on Saturday nights, he would call Dr. Truett just to wake him up so he couldn't go back to sleep. Because Dr. Truett would get so mad because Dr. Norris would call him just to wake him up and do that. Well, I, it was, and you can imagine just the rivalry between Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, big rivalries, and, and not only did it happen between the cities, but it also happened between the churches there. Now, Dr. Norris would do anything he could to antagonize Dr. Truett there. And I saw Dr. Hawkins later that evening at the at the pastor's conference, and, and he comes up and is talking to me, and we were talking. I told him, I said, you know, Dr. Hawkins, I, I'm interested in that book that you're writing I said, because I attended Arlington Baptist College, and he, he smiled, and he said, John, I was there just a couple of weeks ago doing research. And I said, have you ever listened to those tapes that are there in, in the library? He said, I haven't listened to those. I said, well, you're going to find all kinds of things out about Dr. Norris. And he said, well, let me tell you a story that most people don't know. He said, Dr. Norris, uh, when he was trying to raise money, he said, my great-uncle, Dr. Hawkins' great-uncle, was the chairman of deacons for First Baptist Fort Worth. And so when they needed to raise money, big monies, to build buildings and do things, he would, Dr. Norris would say, okay, I need somebody who's going to be the first one today to get up and write a check for $100. And he said, my great-uncle would get up in front of the crowd, and he would pull out his checkbook, and he would write a $100 check and put it in an offering plate. And they go through this $100, down to 75 down to 50 down to 25 right on through there. And he said, on Monday morning, Dr. Norris would call my great uncle and say, come here to the office. And when my uncle would walk in, Dr. Norris would hand him back his check. It was just a seed check. Now, I just want you to know, I have never done that, okay? <laughs> I have never, I've never done that. But I'm just wanting you to know that when you think about about uh, stories there about different pastors and, and all of that. Do you know where the first Baptist church in America was started, was created? It was in Providence, Rhode Island, and this is it. It's still here today. They've got some great pictures of it. This is the outside of it. Let me see. Here's the inside. Before we go any further, look at there. You get locked into your pew. The preacher has a button down there on the floor, and you cannot get to the bathroom. Now, no, it's just interesting. Isn't it a beautiful building? Uh, it really is a beautiful building. Now, let me give you a little history about it. Roger Williams was the pastor of it, started it in 1638. As, and Roger Williams, though, wasn't the first Baptist preacher. The first Baptist preacher was a man that we meet in the first verses of the book of Mark in Mark chapter 1. Many times when we mention John, we mention him as John the what? Baptist. Now, he wasn't a Baptist in any sense of the word that we use it today. The word baptize means to immerse, to dunk, or to dip. 
So long before the first NBA basketball player dunked the ball, we could have, John the Baptist could have been called John the Dunker there as well. And before we look at John the Baptizer, we also, if you think about it there, you, we could have called him John the Dipper. And so we could have been the first Baptist Dippers instead of the first Baptist church there. And there are a lot of Dippers around the world. There's a lot of Dippers in the state of New Mexico as well. And, and so I want us to begin with information about Mark's gospel. We call this the gospel according to Mark, but his name never appears anywhere in the, in the text. You never find Mark's name there. We call it Mark because there was an early pastor named Bishop Papias who wrote in the second century that this account was written by John Marcus, who, or John Mark, told to him by Simon Peter. We know that Peter and Mark were very close because Peter ends his very first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, by saying this, As does Mark, my son. So it could be called the gospel according to Peter as told to Mark. That's what it could be told. Now, now Mark was writing to a Roman audience. You need to understand the audience that Mark was writing to. And Romans loved action especially miracles. And so the book of Mark contains more miracles per chapter than the other gospels accounts. Now the most common word in these pages is a little word that is euthus, E-U-T-H-U-S, which means quickly or immediately. That word appears 40 times in 16 chapters, but the action never, never stops. Now Mark skips the birth narrative of Jesus. The other Gospels talk about the birth and, and the, the birth narrative of Jesus, as you will see in the other Gospels. And, but Mark jumps right into the action, and so let's begin reading with verse 1. It says, In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, seeing I am sending my messenger ahead of you, he will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt round his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We're not sure exactly how John the Baptist, John the Baptizer looked, but according to the descriptions that we have, that we do have in the Bible, he probably looked like a version between a homeless man and a cross between Bigfoot. Uh, I, I was trying to think about what he really looked like. I, we really don't know. There are some artists that have pictures of him, and I looked at the paintings and stuff of him, but, but we know from Luke chapter 1 that John was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in his mother's womb. He took a Nazarite vow, and that meant that he was never to drink and he was never to cut his hair. He had an unusual dress that we read about here in our scriptures this morning. He wore a, a, a coat of camel hair with a leather belt around it. He ate locusts and 
wild honey. And, and no doubt, I, I believe he looked like a wild man. But John was a man who understood his role in this world. So I want us to learn four important spiritual lessons this morning about the man and his ministry. Number one on your outline, we are called to help people find and follow God. The Bible says that John was a voice of one calling in the wilderness. He would say, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. Late night television has the Tonight Show, and currently it's the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. I, in 2014, Jay Leno retired from hosting the Tonight Show after 22 years. Before Jimmy and before Jay, Johnny Carson hosted the show for 30 years there. For all of those 30 years, the show always started out with Johnny's sidekick, Ed McMahon, introducing Johnny by saying the same thing for 30 years. Live from Hollywood, it's the Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. And then he would introduce the guests, and then he would utter his famous line. And now, here's Johnny. Now, I see a lot of you old folks uh, lip-syncing that today. Now, you didn't see Ed McMahon at that point in time. You never saw him until later in the show, but in the beginning, it was just his voice. You never saw him at all. That was basically the role that John the Baptist had as well. He came to introduce the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was just a voice crying out in the wilderness. And John's way, or John's job was to prepare the way for the Lord. He fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. If in your Bible you have their beginning in, in verse 2, about halfway through verse 2 into verse 3, if your words are, are darkened or bolded there, that always tells you that those words came from the Old Testament. And so when you're reading your Bible and you come on some darkened words, bolded words there, you need to say, okay, where is this found? Well, we know here that it is written by the prophet Isaiah. So you knew that you probably went to the book of Isaiah to find it there. Your scripture will always tell you where to find it there. But here was the basic role of John the Baptist. He would introduce Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He was just a voice crying in the wilderness. And, and his, what, his job was to prepare the way for the Lord. Now in verse 4 of Isaiah 4, it says, Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. Now I want you to picture John the baptizer standing on the side of a mountain, looking out over the spiritual landscape filled with mountains and valleys. There were mountains of unbelief and there were valleys of despair and there were crooked ways of sin and rough ways of doubt. You need to understand that for 400 years, the Jewish people hadn't heard a word from God. There between the two, what is called the intertestamental era, between the Old Testament, the end of it, and the beginning of the New Testament, God's voice was silent to the Jewish people for 400 years. And all of a sudden, here comes John's voice shattering the silence. And he brought down the mountains and filled in the valleys. And he said, here he is. This is the Messiah. And let him show you how, let me show you how to know him. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 29, 
there that on, on, it's on the screen as well that the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For all of us that know God, there was someone who pointed the way for us. It might have been a parent. It might have been a grandparent. It might have been a pastor or a loving Sunday school teacher. But someone helped us find and follow God. And guess what, folks? It's now your turn. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a believer, it is your job to begin to disciple other folks. It's not just the preacher's job. It's not just Nathan's job. It's not just the pastor's wife. It is everyone that is a believer of Jesus Christ. Your job is to disciple someone else. And then they are to disciple someone else. They're the the old, for all of us that know Jesus. Let me just tell you, your job is to point Jesus Christ to others. There's an old Methodist evangelist. You might have heard his name mentioned several times through the years, but Sam Jones used to tell the story about the time when the paddlewheel riverboats would steam up and down the Mississippi River. When two riverboats passed, there was a, a tradition that what, what the passengers would leave their, their rooms and leave the big rooms there, and they would go gather on the rail of the, of the, the two paddle boats, and they would wave at each other, as they would go by, as they would pass. One day, as two paddle boats passed each other, were passing, a fireman came up to see and just to wave at the other folks there. And he, and he, the fireman was one who fed the boiler so that they would keep the steam going there. And he came up on the rail and he said, Look, look, there's the captain, the finest captain on the Mississippi, pointing to the captain of the other ship. And there was a well-dressed man looked at that grimy fireman and said, what gives you the right to say that he's the finest captain? How would you know anyway? And the fireman said, well, last year I was up on the deck of, of his boat and a storm blew up very quickly and I fell overboard and, sir, I, I couldn't swim. And I was crying, help me! Help me! And the captain himself jumped into the water and saved my life. And ever since he saved me, I just love to point him out. That's my story also. I was seeking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, but the master of the sea heard my disparaging cry. From the waters he lifted me, and now safe am I. Folks, that's why I love to point to the captain of my salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And and I want to ask you today, are you pointing people to God? I would encourage you to continue to use these life action cards that we have and that you can give out to folks. And you can just say, hey, do you go to church anywhere? And they, would, they may say yes, and if they say, well, that's great, you can go on the back there, and there's a website, and you can get any question answered about kingdom work and about God and about the Bible. And I would like to invite you to church. If you ever are looking for a church home, come and see us at First Baptist Church. We have those cards down here. They're right here to my right, right in front of Nathan there. And if you've used up your cards, we've got them bundled up in, in packages of five. And I promise you, you can give those cards away. You see, God's love, you can show God's love by inviting people to church. 
and help them on their walk and search for the Lord. Number two, we find forgiveness when we make a U-turn towards God. John's message was very simple. Repent and be baptized. The gospel is a short and simple message. For instance, did you know that there are only 297 words in the Ten Commandments? 297. Jesus told the prodigal son parable in the New Testament by only using 504 words. An average 30-minute message is usually 3,800 words, unless you talk fast and or you talk slow, and it could be a lot shorter there. But compare that to how many words are usually in the bills that our Congress pass, and they want you thousands upon thousands of words in which nobody can understand them, including the Congress people who, who, who bring them up before the floor for a vote there. Let me say something here, three words. Simple is good. Simple is good. The word repent means to have a change of mind that leads you to a change of your behavior. John's preaching didn't win him any awards. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, we're going to see where he was preaching. and what he, You know what his preaching led to? It led to him being arrested and being beheaded. His head chopped off. People don't like to hear they need to repent. They think they're just fine the way that they are. There are some churches that no longer talk about sin. They're simple centers of human improvement. But the message of the Bible is that we are all sinners. And if we want to experience God's forgiveness, we have to admit that we're sinners and we need to turn toward God. Joseph Parker was the pastor of City Temple in London during the last part of the 19th century. He was known as one of the strongest preachers of his time, especially in Britain. And he wrote, and listen to his words, the man whose message is repent sets him against his age and will be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. There is but one end for a man. Off with his head. You had better not preach repentance until you pledge your heart and your head to heaven. See, the message of repentance is found throughout the Bible. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He told the Egyptians, repent or you're going to drown. But they laughed at him and they they weren't laughing when they took their last breath underneath the sea. Jonah went to the wicked city of Nineveh and preached, repent or God's going to destroy your city. And guess what? The city of Nineveh, Nineveh did repent and their city was not destroyed. The people repented and God spared their city. God's requirement to repent hasn't been repealed and it hasn't been replaced. I'm just telling you today. In fact, the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it's up on the screen. You can also look at, find it up in your Bible there. It says, therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus who is appointed for you as the Messiah. Repentance, church, always involves a spiritual U-turn. Mickey Cohen was a violent gangster who lived in Los Angeles in 1949. The young evangelist named Billy Graham was holding a crusade in Los Angeles, and one of Cohen's men, his name was Jim Voss, was converted to Christ, and he arranged a personal meeting between Billy Graham and his boss. 
Time Magazine reported on their meeting. It says after they met, Mickey Cohen was quoted, I am very high on the Christian way of life. Billy came up and before we had, had food, he said, what do you call that, that thing that they say before food? Grace? Yeah, that, yeah, grace. That's what we had. And then he talked a lot about Christianity and stuff. And Mickey was interested, but he wasn't interested in repenting of his sin because he told Billy Graham, there are Christian football players. There are Christian cowboys. Why not a Christian gangster? Billy Graham later reported that Mickey was never willing to repent. Repentance means that you're going in one direction away from God. You hear the truth and you turn from your sin and you turn back towards God there. It's one turn. It's not two. You don't have to first turn from your sin and then turn towards God. When you turn towards God, church, you are turning from your sin. Number three, abundant life is more about Jesus and it's less about me and you. John said, after me comes the one more powerful than I, and the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie in the scripture that we read. The job of the lowliest slave was to stoop down and untie those leather thongs of his master's sandals. And John said, I'm not even worthy to do that for my master. Crowds came out of Jerusalem into the desert. I'm sure they were enthralled with the preaching of John. And if he had claimed to be the Messiah, most of them would have believed him that he was the Messiah. But John didn't have a Messiah complex. He was willing to step aside and give all the glory to Jesus. And we may forget that John the Baptist had disciples as well. If you read in John chapter 3, his disciples come to him complaining about the new guy. And Jesus was getting all the crowds that they used to get. And John said that he was only the friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom should get all of the attention at the wedding. And so he was happy. And then John said in verse 28 of John chapter 3, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah. But I've been sent ahead ahead to him. He must increase, but I must decrease. We live in a culture, church, do we not? Where nobody's satisfied with being number two. Nobody's satisfied with being number two. In fact, we see professional football teams or baseball teams or basketball teams. They may be in, in the Super Bowl or in the World Series and, or in the NBA Finals there. And guess what? I have never seen the losing team say, go to the locker room and pop out the champagne and say, we're number two, we're number two. (laughs) Never seen that. Have you ever seen that? Never seen it at all. But you go over into the other locker room and man, they're putting goggles on and everything else. That champagne's flowing and, and shooting all over the place. And we're number one, we're number one there. Nobody gets excited about being number two. In the 1970s, Thomas Wolfe identified the baby boomers as the me generation. Let me just tell you, I'm in the me generation. Me generation goes to 1965. Then from 1966 on, I will tell you that in, 19, in 2013, Time Magazine's cover declared that the millennial generation, do you know what they call the millennial generation? The me, me, me 
generation. It went on to say in that article in Time Magazine, it showed a picture of a girl taking a selfie. Now, we all know what a selfie is, right? But guess what? In 2013, the Oxford Dictionary made the word selfie their official word of the year in 2013. The very fact that the word selfie is part of our vocabulary says a lot about our culture. In in Greek mythology, Narcissus was a handsome god who saw a reflection of his face in the water and it's said that he fell in love with himself. Basically, he took the very first selfie at that point in time. John the Baptist never took a selfie. Someone once said the toughest instrument. Now, I know, Nathan, that you say you play 30 to 35 instruments. Let me just tell you something about that. Someone once said the toughest instrument to play is second fiddle. (laughs) Is that true? Okay, all right. Now, John was comfortable in the role of being second fiddle to Jesus. Like John, can you make that the desire of your heart to be second fiddle, not first fiddle? That Jesus would become greater in your life. And the only way Jesus became, becomes greater and greater is when you're willing to become less and less. So repeat after me. Will you do that? It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. All right, let's say it again. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. Do you believe that? I hope you believe that today. Number four, Jesus wants to totally immerse us in God's life. John's immediate message was repent and turn to God. His main message was about Jesus. And he says, I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see that in the scriptures there in verse 8. John's ministry was to baptize people in water as a sign of repentance. And we're going to talk more about water baptism when we look at the baptism of Jesus. But remember the word baptize means to immerse. There is a baptism that is more important than baptism in water. It is baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is an outward act that symbolizes the cleansing of your sins, but it only touches your body. When I baptized Ava a little while ago, water didn't get on the inside. It was just the outside there. But spirit baptism is an inner act that literally purifies your soul and spirit, and you become holy because the Spirit of God is holy. And that's why He is called the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism in the, in the Holy Spirit is so important that it's mentioned six times in the New Testament. In fact, it's mentioned in all four gospel accounts, and Peter quotes it to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. But in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we see while he was with them, he commanded them, Jesus now is with the disciples, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Now, Jesus was talking about what was going to take place on the day of Pentecost, and we know what happened that day. The Holy Spirit came down there, and the disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There are some well-meaning Christians who describe the baptism in the Holy Spirit as some kind of second blessing experience in which you do strange things like you faint or 
you begin to speak in tongues. But for some of them, if you haven't spoken in tongues, they, they tend to make you feel inferior and say, well, there's more to the walk with God than what you're experiencing right now. And some people end up seeking and experience rather than seeking the Lord. So I don't ever want you to seek an experience. I want you to seek the Lord. I strongly believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It is the same as being filled in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. But the Bible makes it very clear that all believers will not speak in tongues. The initial filling of the Holy Spirit may be called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but God continues, church, to continually do. He says, I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit daily. Continue daily. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not for our enjoyment. It is for God's employment for you. To be filled or baptized in the Holy Spirit means that you are totally immersed in the life of God. There are many Christians who are still living according to the desires of the flesh. You know what the Bible calls those folks? Carnal Christians. A carnal Christian saved, but they aren't experiencing the joy and the victory of the Christian life. It's like a carnal Christian has taken a glass of living water and just splashed it on them there, and they just have enough of Jesus to save them, but not really enough to bless them. But a Christian who's baptized in the Holy Spirit just jumps headfirst into the swimming pool filled with living water and their entire being is surrounded, covered, and supported in the life of Jesus. So I want to go ahead and I want you to take the plunge this morning. Allow Jesus to fill you with His Holy Spirit. As I conclude, John's message was repent and be baptized. Jesus' message was, unless you all repent, you shall all likewise perish. So God's giving you an opportunity today to turn to Him and trust Him for forgiveness. Last night, Marsha and I was watching a, a movie on television that involved a plane crash. It was a, a couple that did a, a woman and a man that didn't know each other, and uh, there, but they they got on a little single-engine airplane and. And the pilot began to have a medical problem during the flight. And I was thinking about this illustration, concluding this morning when I was looking at that plane crash. The worst aviation disaster in history happened in 1979 or 77 in the Canary Islands off of the coast of Spain. There were two 747s had been diverted to Tenerife because of a bomb threat at their destination in Spain. The jumbo jets refueled and it, the KLM 747 taxied to the end of the fog-shrouded runway to begin to take off. Meanwhile, there was a Pan Am 747 piloted by Captain Victor Grubbs was taxiing down the runway to follow the KLM jet in taking off. Neither crew could see the other and the controller in the tower couldn't see either jet because of the fog being so thick. The KLM captain began his takeoff roll, and Captain Grubb saw the KLM jet roaring towards them, and he turned left to exit the runway, but it was too late. The KLM left, jet lifted off the runway, but it sheared the top off of the Pan Am jet. There were a total of 583 fatalities that day. Captain Grubbs was one of 
Only 66 survivors. He received second and third degree burns. And as he visited the scene of the crash the next day, he wept. And he was heard to say, if I only had turned sooner. The investigation found that it wasn't his fault, but he still carried that guilt. And the Bible says that there is a danger in delaying your turn to God. The scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 3.15, we just finished with that great book of the Bible. If you don't turn to Christ today, you may be spending eternity saying the same thing that Captain Grubb said, if I only had turned sooner, sooner. The message of salvation is very simple. Repent and turn to God. The way you do that is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 simply is in simple terms that anyone can understand, even any child, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life or have eternal life. We often say there's nothing God can't do. But actually, church, there are three things God cannot do, and they're not on your outline, but you may want to write these down. First of all, God cannot love you any more than He already does. God cannot love you any more than He already does. Number two, God cannot give you more than He's already given you. He's already given His Son to die for you. So God can't love you any more than He already does. Second, He cannot give you more than He's already given you. He's already given His Son to die for you. And then number three, God cannot make it any simpler that if you believe in Him, you can have eternal life. Now, I'm not the first Baptist preacher, and I'm not going to be the last, but I may be the last one that you ever hear offer God's invitation to trust Him. Will you trust Him done in our hearts? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.